The purpose of this lesson today is to get us refocused back to where we started three years ago when we discussed why it is necessary in the first place to even study the life of Jesus Christ. So right now, put on your thinking caps and your listening ears as we very quickly are going to cover a lot of time and a lot of history and a lot of truth concerning the question, what on earth is going on? There have been three major questions of life which have concerned mankind throughout the centuries. These three questions are, where did we come from? Why are we here, and where are we going? Now, many, many attempts over all the centuries since mankind was first here have been uh, offered to explain these three questions. And some of these attempts have been called philosophies of life, and others have actually turned into religions. But the Bible... The Word of God directly deals with these three basic questions. The Bible tells us what on earth is going on. As a matter of fact, the Bible even tells us more than that, doesn't it? It tells us what in the universe from eternity past to eternity future is going on. In other words, the Bible gives to us mankind's entire purpose for being here. The entire purpose for history. The biblical account of history begins with the eternal, personal, living God who exists and always has existed. That's hard to even think about, but he has always, always been there. And he has always existed in three distinct persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Before creation... Nothing at all existed except this holy triune God. Sometime in eternity past, God determined to have a kingdom over which he could rule as the sovereign king. However, since it is impossible to have a kingdom without subjects, And because of the fact that nothing else existed in the whole universe over which he could rule, God, therefore, created two personal major kinds of created beings. First of all, he created angelic subjects. These angels were spirit beings who did not possess bodies like you and I have. They do not possess bodies of flesh and bone, but they do possess intellect, and they do possess the ability to communicate. And these angels, these angelic beings, were more powerful than the second type of created being that God made. And they were made to dwell with God in the heavens, And they were given access to the earth after its creation. And all of this I could support with various scriptures. Now, the second kind of created personal subject God made for his kingdom were human beings. God uniquely created the earth to be a part of his domain. And he placed upon it a kind of a subject who would administer his rule over everything else on this planet, this special planet called Earth. 
Now, in order to be able to do this, man had to be properly equipped for this particular task, to be God's administrator over the earth. It was important for him to understand his earthly physical province. So God formed for him a physical body made out of the dust of the earth. It was likewise necessary for this human being to be able to receive and to understand God's directions. So God created him in his own image as a personal being who possesses intellect and the ability to communicate. And we also, like the triune God in whose image we are made, are made up three, we are three in one. We are body, soul, and spirit. So with the creation of earth and man, God, God's work of bringing his kingdom into existence was complete. And the Bible tells us that he looked at it all and he said that it was what? Good. He said it was very good in Genesis 1.31. However, there was one particularly beautiful and intelligent angelic being who deceived himself into thinking that he could overthrow the sovereign rule of God. His hope was that he could make himself the king of the universe by establishing a kingdom of his own which would war against, battle against, and ultimately destroy God's kingdom. Now, this angelic being's name was, at the beginning, what? Lucifer, which means shining one. We know, of course, that his name was changed to Satan, which means adversary. So in his pride... He became the great enemy of God and also of every other member of God's kingdom. He failed to recognize in his sinful egotism that regardless of his proud plans, he would never and could never be more than a created being of God. Those philosophies that exist out there in the world and those religions that teach a struggle going on between two equal gods, one good and one evil, teach heresy. There is only one God. Satan is nothing more than a created being, and there is no doubt whatsoever about his total, ultimate destruction and defeat. As a matter of fact, God could have crushed Satan's wicked rebellion the moment that it began, the first time he uttered his first defiant, I will, God could have just crushed it right there and wiped him away. But he chose not to do so, didn't he? And sometimes that boggles our minds. Why did he do that? Why did he let Satan rebel? Well, he did so because he wanted his subjects to willingly choose to love and obey and to serve him. He didn't want to just create a bunch of mechanical robots that he forced to love him. He wanted you and I to choose, to willingly choose to love him and obey him. 
Now, so as to establish his own kingdom, Satan needed to obtain subjects over which he could rule. I mean, that makes sense, right? You can't have a kingdom without subjects. And because of the fact that he is merely a created being, a creature himself, he lacked the ability to create his own subjects as God had done. So the only possible way for him then to obtain subjects was through persuasion and deception. He needed to persuade and deceive other created subjects into joining him in his rebellion against God. Since he wanted to replace God's kingdom, this meant that he had to have both heavenly and human being subjects. So he had to persuade both angels and human beings to join him in this rebellion. Now, we do know from the scripture that he did persuade one-third of the created angelic beings to join in his rebellion. And they willingly placed themselves under Satan's rule. This is given to us Matthew 25:41, and again in Revelation 12:7. Satan, therefore, is referred to in the scripture as the prince of angels, Matthew 12, 24 and 26. And he's also referred to as the ruler of the authority of the air because these angelic beings are, do have access to the um, first heaven, the atmospheric heaven around the earth. So he is the ruler of the authority of the air, Ephesians 2, 2. Now he organized his angels in ranks so that they could efficiently carry on the work of his kingdom. And that's given to us in Ephesians 6.11. However, two-thirds of the angelic host, and the book of Daniel tells us that there are 100 million plus thousands of thousands of angels. Two-thirds of this multitude chose to remain faithful to God. And therefore, these angels are referred to in the Holy Scripture as the holy angels or the elect angels. Then, in a very subtle and deceitful way, Satan entered into man's kingdom, into man's perfect earthly environment, which God had looked at and said it is very good, and he tempted man to disobey a very specific command that was given by God. And he used as his bait the idea that if man would obey, he would be as God. And he is still, through the New Age movement and many other cults, trying to deceive man with this same idea. So Satan was, from the very beginning, telling man that he could be his own boss. He could be his own sovereign. He could be the master of his own fate. He could control his own destiny if he would only disobey God on this one little command. So in spite of God's grave warning to the contrary, man deliberately decided to obey God, disobey God and consequently the administrator of the earthly province of God's kingdom joined in this rebellion against his own creator. Now, there were, of course, some tragic consequences which were a result of man's disobedience. First of all, he died spiritually. 
He no longer experienced the intimate fellowship with God that he had had at the beginning because there was a change in his inner man. There was a change in his nature. He had sinned. And God, who is a holy God, cannot fellowship with anything that is unholy. Secondly, man began to die physically. Sin caused a process of decay to begin to operate within man's body. Sin made him subject to disease and to deformities and eventually to death itself. Furthermore, man lost some of his ability to exercise dominion over the earth, and the ability that he did retain became perverted, and he was doomed to eventually abuse the earth in which God put him. Also because of man's rebellion against God, he was immediately transferred from membership in the kingdom of God to membership in the kingdom of Satan. Because humans reproduce after their kind, as it tells us in Genesis, every human being who has ever been born, other than the Lord Jesus Christ, who did not have a human father, every other human being has been born with this Adamic coming from the word Adam, the first man, Adamic sin nature. We're all born in sin. But likewise, every human being also chooses to sin, to disobey God on his own. On his own. We are not only sinners by birth, we are sinners, each and every one of us, by choice. Unless an individual accepts God's way of salvation, which we'll discuss later, he will live out his life deceived by Satan. He will believe that error is truth and truth is error. And he is headed for the same ultimate uh, road of destruction. He's on that same road of destruction that Satan and his band of fallen angels are headed for. Now, last of all, because the administrator of God's earthly province became a member of Satan's kingdom of rebellion, the earth became a province of Satan's kingdom, which is why Christ referred to Satan as the prince of this world in John 12, 31. And this is why Satan rightfully had the authority to offer Jesus all of the kingdoms of the world when he was tempting him to sin in the wilderness, which we looked at, uh, I think, the first year, back in Luke 4. 1 John 5.19 tells us that the whole world lies in the evil one. He is the present usurping prince of this world. So tragically, man had been duped by Satan into believing his lie. And instead of his rebellion, man's rebellion against God's authority, bringing him freedom and bringing him this godhood, it brought him into bondage to a sinful disposition and to the continual fear that man lives with of eventual death. Rather than becoming the master of his own fate, Rather than becoming his own boss, his own sovereign, man was brought under the dominion of a new king. He had been under the dominion of a loving, gracious, benevolent king who offered him peace and love and joy and fulfillment 
in return for his willful obedience. But his new king was a ruthless, cruel taskmaster who cared absolutely nothing for him and only offered him sickness, conflict, grief, pain, frustration, despair, and all the rest that goes along with it, and ultimately eternal separation from God. Man's rebellion placed him so firmly in his tragic predicament that he was totally incapable of rescuing himself from it. However, we find that through the course of history, he very frequently invented ingenious devices and work programs to attempt to improve this predicament, this situation he was in. But there is no way that man ever could or ever can work his way back to that fellowship with God. He cannot do it in his own efforts. Nothing short of a supernatural, divine intervention from God himself would be able to save man from the predicament that he brought upon himself through his own willful choice. So Satan had succeeded in transferring many of God's angels, one-third of them, and all of God's human beings into his domain. And in the process, he had also made the earth a province of his kingdom. So from all outward appearances, it looked pretty bad. It looked like he was succeeding in his challenge of the sovereignty of God. There were now two opposing kingdoms in existence. If God were to remain the absolute sovereign, he must crush Satan and his rebellious kingdom altogether. Therefore, the stage was set for a tremendous conflict, and it is what we call the conflict of the ages. It is a conflict fought both in the atmospheric heavens and here on earth. Because the Word of God, the Bible, is God's written revelation to man, to the human beings, not so much to the angels, it's revelation to man, it tells us primarily about the earthly part of this conflict. It is this conflict which actually provides us with the key for unlocking the mystery of the ultimate purpose for all of history. Both God and his enemy, Satan, each have their own purpose for history. But since God is God and Satan is only a created being, God's purpose for history is the ultimate one. So let's look, first of all, at what is Satan's purpose? What is Satan's purpose for history? Well, very simply, it is to make himself the only sovereign king of the entire universe. When it was established, Satan's kingdom was not an everlasting one like God's. He can only make his kingdom an everlasting kingdom by crushing God and his kingdom. And this is precisely what he has been attempting to do ever since he first rebelled. God's purpose, on the other hand, is to demonstrate his sovereignty, his complete absolute rule, by totally and permanently crushing Satan and his whole kingdom and removing all of the rebellious ones permanently and restoring his theocratic rule in those provinces of the heaven and earth which have been temporarily usurped by Satan. 
So the ultimate purpose for history is the demonstration of God's sovereignty. In order to demonstrate his sovereignty during the course of history, he must do, this is God I'm talking about, he must restore this present earth that we live on back to its original condition where he could look at it and say it is very good. He must also make human beings spiritually alive again. He must abolish physical disease, deformities, uh, natural catastrophes, hazards, accidents, violence, and death by resurrecting the bodies of those that are already dead. He must cause man to govern this present earth in the manner he originally intended. He must also perfect the environment and restore the animal kingdom to the state it was at the beginning where all animals were tame, all animals were non-carnivorous, they didn't eat meat. He must transfer human beings from membership in the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his glorious light and truth by causing these human beings to experience what we call a new spiritual birth. And he must dethrone Satan as the king of the world and restore earth as a province of his own kingdom. And the reversal of all these consequences of man's rebellion, man's sin, is what we call God's plan of redemption, his program for redemption. Now, God, it is interesting to note, wasted absolutely no time whatsoever in initiating this redemptive program for man and for the earth. No sooner had Satan usurped this earth for his own kingdom than God delivered a prophecy concerning Satan's eventual destruction, his eventual doom. And this prophecy you can find in Genesis 3, 14 and 15. I've got up here verse 15. God told Satan that eventually a man born of a woman, born only of a woman, we know that by the word seed, her seed, no woman has a seed, only men have seeds, and I don't think I need to explain that to you, but that was telling us, mankind, from the very beginning, that this would be a supernatural birth because it would be from a virgin He told Satan that eventually a man born of a virgin would deliver a devastating blow to him, a blow that would bruise his head, and a blow to your head is fatal. This was God's very, very early way of promising that a redeemer would be born into the world in a supernatural way through a virgin birth, and that this redeemer would do the work necessary to crush Satan's rebellion. Now, in order for God to reverse the consequences of man's sin, it meant getting rid of human sin. We know that elsewhere in the Bible, it is revealed to us that only the payment of an adequate penalty could satisfy divine justice and remove man's sin. Death, we are told in Romans 5 and 6, death was the only adequate payment. It would be through, then, this Redeemer's perfectly sinless life and his death that the penalty for man's sin would be paid. 
and it would make it possible for God then to reverse the consequences of man's rebellion. So the Redeemer was to be the heart of God's strategy against Satan, his war with Satan. Through the redemptive work of the Redeemer, God would save people out of Satan's kingdom and make them permanent, permanent members of his eternal kingdom, Galatians 1.4. These redeemed humans would remain in the world... The minute they had this new spiritual birth, they weren't to be removed. They were to remain in this world for the rest of their earthly lives to act as representatives of God in Satan's domain. So they would live in the world, but they were not really of the world anymore. Their citizenship was already where? In heaven. But he kept us here those of us who have had this new birth and are true Christians, he has kept us here so that we will be lights of truth in a dark world. God would, on occasion, use nations and even unsaved people to serve his purposes. So even though his kingdom would not exist worldwide, it would always, always be represented and functioning during every single period of human history. And this is why there is always the continuing presence of good alongside evil in this world. Now, since the coming and the work of the Redeemer was to be the key for God's strategy in this warfare, the key to Satan's strategy, you can imagine, would be the prevention of the Redeemer's coming and the fulfillment of his work. At all costs, Satan wanted to stop this Redeemer from coming. Also added to his strategy was a war against the holy, the elect angels, and those redeemed humans who placed their trust and faith in this Redeemer. His warfare was against them on both sides of the cross. Now, when Satan heard God's first prophecy of this coming Redeemer, he quickly realized that it would be fatal to him and to his cause uh, to allow him to come. So his primary goal throughout the Old Testament is to prevent this Redeemer from ever getting here in the first place. He began as early back as Cain and Abel. It was obvious to Satan that one son of Adam and Eve was godly in his nature because he obeyed God and offered his sacrifice in a way pleasing to God. While on the other hand, it was obvious to Satan that the other son was ungodly in his attitude. So it occurred to Satan that it would most likely be through the line of this godly Abel that this Redeemer would come. Therefore, it became very important for Satan to get rid of him. Since Cain was already controlled by a rebellious attitude, it didn't take much to prompt him to kill his own brother. 1 John 3, 10 and 11 tells us that Satan himself, if you think I'm exaggerating, that Satan was involved in Cain's slaying of Abel. And this is why Jesus referred to Satan, remember, as a murderer from the what? From the very beginning. 
that was Satan behind that murder, that first murder, and that's in John 8, 44. But fortunately, God counteracted the murder of Abel by giving Eve another godly son whose name was Seth. Do you know what that name means? Substitute. He was a substitute for Abel. It was through the line of Seth, we know from the genealogy of Christ that is given to us in Luke 3, that the Redeemer would indeed come. So God gave, a, gave us a substitute. So Satan realized that for every godly son he might destroy, God would raise up another one. So he changed his tactic. He then decided he would pervert the entire human race including Seth's descendants. And he would do this through apostasy. He began by developing an ungodly line through Cain. He was his prime candidate, so through Cain came this ungodly line. The descendants of Cain began to build an advanced civilization which was totally godless in outlook and which was characterized by polygamy, multiple marriages, and violence and perversions of all kinds. And eventually, even Seth's godly line became infected until the whole human race was so totally perverted that it filled the earth with all of its violence and corruption. And the Bible tells us that God, quote, saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his hearts was only evil continually. A sad state of affairs for the human race. This so grieved God that he decided that he would destroy man from the face of the earth. But, as always, he counteracted Satan's wicked scheme by preserving one righteous godly man who was a descendant of, guess who? Seth. Exactly. And this man's name was Noah. This one man, along with his family, was enough to carry on the godly line of Seth through which the Redeemer would be able to come. God had to destroy the human race, not only for the purpose of judgment, but also for the purpose of ending the perversion going on in the earth before even Noah's family would be infected with it. And as we know, God instructed Noah as to how he and his family and representatives of the animal kingdom might be preserved from the judgment by flood, which was to purge this world. So with the flood, God gave the human race an opportunity to have a new beginning with him. And as a means then to restrain man's tendency to murder and perversion, God instituted for the first time capital punishment, and he also instituted human government so that wrongdoing would be effectively punished. At the same time, God promised that he would never again destroy all flesh with a flood. So hearing this, Satan determined to use this promise to his advantage, and he decided that he would again pervert the human race entirely. And he began immediately. He never wastes any time. Began immediately with one of Noah's sons, Ham. 
Now, it was to Satan's advantage to keep mankind close together in one area so as to more easily spread apostasy and perversion. His plan began to work as mankind then united in a building project of the Tower of Babel, which was a total effort of humanism, man thinking he could reach God on his own. God, we know, counteracted this move toward apostasy and humanism by causing people for the first time ever to speak in different languages. And this confusion of language caused the building activity to immediately stop. And the human race scattered over the face of the earth as each language group went off together, eventually building nations on the basis of their common languages. The scattering of Noah's descendants slowed down somewhat then, the spread of apostasy. But it didn't stop it altogether. Satan was determined. And through time, he was able to persuade men to suppress the truth about the living God. They began to teach each succeeding generation a little bit less and a little bit less about God. And eventually, men were inventing several idolatrous religions as substitutes for the worship of the true God. And because of this, man again began to degenerate progressively into moral perversion. Nation after nation became corrupted until God revealed that he intended to bring into existence a new nation. And this nation would play a key role in his warfare against the kingdom of Satan. And its name would be what? Yes, Israel. This new nation would be called Israel. This new revelation came from God in the form of a covenant that he made with a man whose name was Abraham, a member of the line of Seth and Noah and Shem. And once again, though almost the entire human race was sick with sin, God had one man who was willing to obey him in spite of the massive peer pressure To the contrary, this one man was willing to step out in faith and obey God and move into the land of Canaan, the promised land. And God promised Abraham that because of this, all the nations of the earth would be blessed through his seed, which was his way of promising that it was through the line of Abraham that this Redeemer would come. Now, after several generations, Abraham's descendants migrated to Egypt where they live and they prospered there for several centuries. Now, seeing a new godly group of people beginning to really multiply put Satan on alarm, and he became the vicious, vicious enemy of these chosen people of God. He realized that if he was going to defeat the kingdom of God, he must destroy this new nation, this nation of Israel. So from Egypt forward, history has become for Israel, the Jewish people, one anti-Semitic attack after another. And all you have to do is read your history books to find out how true that is. His first attempt to annihilate Israel came when Satan used the stubborn will of Pharaoh in Egypt. 
who would not let the people go. God counteracted this satanic move by raising up a deliverer named Moses. And as we know, Israel was finally free to head back toward the promised land of Canaan. However, her route back to the land led her through the wilderness of the Sinai Peninsula, where Satan was afforded numerous opportunities to attack the people and attempt to destroy them completely. And he began by causing Pharaoh to change his mind and pursue this nation with his chariots and his army. And Israel was trapped between the chariot, the charging chariot army and the deep waters of the Red Sea. So God had to perform a miracle, didn't he? What did he do? You've all seen the Ten Commandments. I love that scene. God divided the waters so that Israel could walk across unhindered. And then Satan threatened to destroy the people through a lack of water, through uh, water which was unfit to drink, which would have poisoned them with starvation and with an attack by the Amalekites. But in each and every case, God intervened and saved his people over and over again. About uh, three months after her departure from Egypt, God established a covenant, another covenant, with the nation of Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. He gave them laws which were to keep this new nation free from the apostasy and the perverted lifestyles and habits of the other nations of the world. This law was to be then an external restraint upon sinful tendencies until the Redeemer could come. Whether or not Israel would keep this law was no idle matter. She had to maintain a godly line from which the Messiah could come. It was critical. It was very, very important. And that's why God looks so harsh when we see the judgments on the people in the Old Testament. It was absolutely critical that they obey. So a godly line would be maintained and the Messiah could come. Therefore, in order to impress this fact upon Israel, God warned her very strongly about her relationship to this covenant. It would determine her future course, her, her history. If she obeyed it, if she obeyed this covenant and these laws, she would be blessed and she would be protected from harm. If, however, she broke the laws, broke the covenant, God with, would withdraw his protective care and his protective presence from her. And he would be forced to chasten her with conquest from other nations, with desolation, and with scattering. He would have to scatter her among the Gentile nations. However, he did promise that regardless of what happened, he would always preserve a remnant. He would always have a remnant so that it would never go out of existence. Well, Satan's attack continued. He immediately attempted to destroy the entire nation, uh, even while Moses was still receiving the law. And the Israelites prompted Moses' brother Aaron to make a golden calf, and the people began to worship the calf as God. And therefore, God had to counteract this, and he immediately removed all those that were involved in this wickedness. Later, when Israel finally did reach the promised land, Satan attacked again 
by using human fear and unbelief so that they were uh, too afraid to go actually take possession of the land. They were giants. We're nothing but grasshoppers. We can't do it. They failed to trust God. And so they had to wander for 40 years until all of those that were 20 years of age and older died off. Now the entire history contained in the Old Testament then becomes one attack of Satan after another, always counteracted by God to preserve Israel and the godly line through which the Redeemer could come. When Joshua, who led the people actually into the land, when he died off, there was no one, really, no outstanding godly man to take his place. And so Satan saw his opportunity to press on with his attack. As a result, there followed 350 years of Jewish history, which was characterized by apostasy and anarchy, until finally at the end of the book of Judges we read that every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Satan used three kinds of disobedience to create the situation. He caused people not to rid the land of all the heathens, the Canaanites, as God had told them to do, they disobeyed. He caused them uh, to therefore adopt the Canaanites' worship of uh, Baal and Ashtaroth, and he caused them to intermarry with these Canaanite pagan people in direct violation of God's strict orders. Consequently, because of these three things, Israel began to practice gross, idolatrous perversions. However, during this period of the judges, Israel never did become totally apostate. God always intervened before this could happen by raising up a foreign power, another nation, to oppress these apostate Jews until they would finally get the message, repent, and turn back to God. And then he would, when they turned back to him, then he would raise up a godly deliverer, which we was called a judge. This cycle of apostasy, oppression, repentance, and deliverance was repeated time after time after time during this whole period known as the judges. To finally put an end to this cycle, God raised up a strong leader for the whole nation. This man's name was Samuel. Samuel was able to do what none of the judges single-handedly could do. He was able to pull the nation back together and direct all of the people to repent of their apostasy, to put away their false gods and return wholeheartedly to God. But when Samuel grew old, there was no one to replace him. His own sons were not good boys. And Satan, therefore, saw his opportunity and prompted the Israelites to request a king from Samuel. They wanted a monarchy with a human king like all the other nations had, peer pressure. <laughs> they have a king, we want a king. They didn't want a theocracy where God was the king. Samuel, of course, protested, but God told him to do what the people wanted, and so they received Saul as their first king. You see, with a central government under a human 
person, a human king, it would be a lot easier for Satan to pervert the entire nation because if the king and the leadership fell, surely the nation would follow suit. And this is exactly what took place. Eventually, the nation of Israel was divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was called Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah. The northern kingdom, in its history, had a total of 19 kings. Of those 19 kings, every single one of them was apostate, was wicked in character and in action. And finally, the whole nation was so perverted and apostate that God had to raise up the nation of Assyria to smite Israel, the northern kingdom, and to carry her off into captivity, which he did in 734 B.C. The southern kingdom, called Judah, took a little longer to go apostate. She had a total of 19 kings and one queen. And of these, the Bible tells us, Does anybody know how many were godly? Seven only out of 20 were good. Now, since by this time it was made known through God's prophecies, his forecast, his revelation ahead of time to man, that the Redeemer would now also be coming through the line of David, King David, Satan focused his attack upon the royal line of David. One of his greatest instruments of attack was Athaliah. She was the daughter of King Ahab and Jezebel, two very, very wicked people. Athaliah married into the royal house of Judah, even though she was from Israel. When her husband and her son died, she seized the throne and made herself the queen. That's why there was one queen. And then she proceeded to order the extermination of every single, every single royal person who descended from David. Where do you think she got her ideas? Satan. And this is in 2 Kings 11. Now this would have been the end of the royal line. This would have been the end. The Redeemer would not have been able to come if God had not intervened by preserving one infant boy named Joash. And this little boy was kept hidden in the temple by a godly high priest and his wife for six years. And then at the proper time, he was revealed and he was crowned king. Athaliah was slain and the godly line was preserved through one little boy. But eventually, the southern kingdom of Judah, in spite of several revivals that were brought about by some godly kings and by some godly prophets, eventually it also slumped into apostasy, and God was forced to chasten her by raising up a new foreign power called Babylon to conquer her and take her into captivity so she would learn her lesson about worshiping false gods. Thus, the Babylonian captivity of the Jews began in 605 B.C., and this was the time, you know, of Daniel. When we studied the book of Daniel, uh, we covered all of this, and it was also the time of Ezekiel. In fact, God somehow miraculously caused Ezekiel to actually witness the withdrawal 
of his own glory, the Shekinah glory from the temple and from the city of Jerusalem. And this was a very, very significant time in the war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan because God withdrew his protective care from both the temple and from Jerusalem. But though most of the nation was apostate, even in Babylon, God remembered his promise and he preserved his godly remnant. Such men as Daniel and Ananiah, Hazariah, and Mishael, better known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The punishment in Babylon was intended to cure them, the, Israel, the Israelites, the Jewish people, once and for all, of their idolatry. And there were several more uh, times in this period when Satan used men, such as King Nebuchadnezzar and Haman, you might remember him in the book of Esther, to attempt to destroy completely the Jewish people, wipe them out and corrupt them. But God always, always intervened as he did in the fiery furnace and as he did by using Esther. So both times he preserved his chosen people. Eventually, after 70 years of chastening in Babylon, which had been predicted by Jeremiah, that it would be 70 years, and as always, God is right on target. 70 years are over. It's time to go back home. So eventually Israel was allowed to return back to their land, and under the godly leadership of such men as Nehemiah and Ezra, Jerusalem and the wall were restored. The Babylonian Empire was conquered, as predicted by Daniel beforehand, by the Medes and the Persians, who then were conquered by the Greek armies of Alexander the Great. And in time, the Greek culture and the language pervaded the whole known entire earth, uh, which was all a working of God's sovereign plan, so that the gospel could more easily be spread because of a common language. Everywhere Alexander conquered, people started to speak Greek. You see how God was working? Also, the, then the Greeks were conquered by the, who? Romans. And the Romans instituted the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, which made it more easy for people to travel without being killed by thieves and murderers. They established a great, wonderful network of Roman roads. So again, it made travel easier. God was preparing the way for his missionaries. He was preparing the way for Paul and Barnabas and Silas and Timothy and Titus and all those so they could get from one place to another telling people the good news that the Redeemer is here. And then in 63 B.C., Palestine or Israel, Palestine, came under Roman domination. Eventually, Rome appointed a man by the name of Herod the Great to be the king of Judea, and he began his reign in 37 B.C. So, although Satan repeatedly tried to either destroy Israel or to make her totally apostate, throughout the Old Testament, God continually time and time again, intervene to preserve a faithful remnant of people. Finally, through a young, godly woman from the royal bloodline of David, the Redeemer was born. 
an angel announced to her that her son was to be called Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. He was to be the son of the Most High God conceived by the Holy Spirit, the heir through his stepfather, Joseph, he would be the heir to the throne of King David. So through his mother, he came, he was connected to David through the bloodline, because that was critical. But through his stepfather, he inherited the throne. If there were still kings, Jesus would have been the king. And he was the one who was to give the fatal blow to God's enemy, Satan, and restore both the earth and humanity to its original condition. So despite his many frantic attempts to prevent this Redeemer from being born in the first place, Satan failed. The person who was the key to the fulfillment of God's purpose for history was now present on earth. Although he was God, he's the second person of the triune God, he willingly had become human flesh so as to put away man's sin by the substitutionary sacrifice of himself upon a cross so that he could crush Satan and the works of his rebellious kingdom. This one then, this God-man, becomes for all history for all humanity, the key figure. It is his story completely from beginning to end. He is the only hope for humanity, for he alone provides the way of escape from our bondage to sin and to death. It is by faith in him alone that salvation is provided. It is by faith in him, not by our own works. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, not of works, lest we would boast if we could do it ourselves. I've built a tower to God. No, no, no. It is by faith alone in God's grace that we are saved, that we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light and truth and joy and fulfillment and love and peace. It is through faith in his sinless, perfect life, his substitutionary death, and his glorious, wonderful resurrection that human beings can experience the new birth, new spiritual freedom and life, and freedom from that fear of death. It is because the Christian faith centers on this one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, that it is so, so important for us to study his life in every detail, his every word, his every work. It's important for us to see his life as perfectly, perfectly righteous. It's important for us to hear every single word of truth that he spoke and carefully examine how those words apply to our lives today. It's important for us to walk with him step by step through his earthly years so that we grow to love him more and so that we can become more like him ourselves as we follow in his footsteps. And it's important for us to see how his miracles demonstrate his absolute 
sovereign authority over disease, over demons, over nature, and over death. And yes, even over his ancient enemy, Satan. And this, then, is why we continue in our fourth year of study on the life of Christ. And with this introduction, perhaps we will see more clearly as we go on why Satan continually battled with Jesus. The battle didn't end, you know, when he was born. Right away, what did Satan do? As we've already seen, he tried to kill him through Herod's edict to kill all the baby boys two years and younger in Bethlehem. Again, God intervened through a dream to Joseph. He tempted, remember, to, uh, oh, I already showed that picture, but to, to tempt him. Satan tried to tempt Jesus to sin in the wilderness so that he would not be able to be God's perfect sacrifice for mankind. And he tempted him to accept a crown without the cross, without going to the cross. And he continually tried to discredit him over and over again among the people by the attacks of the religious leader, the scribes and the Pharisees. All of these situations that we've already looked at and that we'll continue to look at in our study can be more clearly understood when we realize the battle that is waging on earth between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. But the good news on this side of the cross, where you and I are so privileged to live, is that the war is already won. The battles are going on, but the war is already won. It was won when Jesus completed the work that he came to accomplish and said, It is finished, and died, and three days later, raised from the dead proving forever and ever that he is sovereign God. And ultimate total victory is his. All that awaits the completion of history is for him to now return to take back that which is rightfully his by way of creation and by way of redemption and to put Satan and all of his rebellious forces away permanently. Would you bow your heads? The good news is that you and I don't have to wait until his return to experience the reality of his kingdom. You can be a citizen today of that kingdom simply by trusting in this promised Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ who from our place in history has already come and he has already given that fatal blow to Satan's head. To experience this new spiritual birth, we nearly need to confess him as our Lord and Savior and to know that his death was on our behalf so that we could be free from having to pay the penalty for sin ourselves. And that penalty is eternal separation from God. Father, I pray that if there is one here today who has never invited you into her heart to take over her life as her personal Lord and Savior, her Redeemer, that this very day she would submit herself to you and ask for your forgiveness and accept that free gift of salvation you alone can and do offer to her. 
Thank you, Lord, for being a God who cares about us so much that you came to earth yourself to die so that we might once again experience fellowship with thee. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.